Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Don't you love a good rescue story? When they're down to the wire and their necks are going to stretch, their heads are going to roll, you know, they're helpless before the onslaught. It's inevitable what's going to happen. And then the rescuer arrives. I don't think there's any more classic scene than the one brought to us by Kevin Costner, Morgan Freeman, and the late, great Alan Rickman. Let's enjoy this. Isn't that terrific? And I think it captures for us a little bit of our own story of gospel rescue. The good news that we discover through the story of Jesus is that he came to rescue us, stepping into our broken world to save us from an impossible situation. And he not only rescued us from death, but he stepped into our place of execution, died in our place, took the death that we deserved. Talk about a great story reversal. And then, shock of all shocks, rose again and brought us with him to his own home, made us part of the family. You know, not just rescued from death, but given new life, added to the family, and changed for ever. That's good news. That's the gospel. But what does this do to us now? How does this affect us? How does being rescued by Jesus change us as people? You know, a lot of people do wonder what difference Christianity even makes. And the question is legit. Too many times people confess Christ with their words while being anti-Christ in their actions. We know this is true. I try to read more history than news because I find that reading past history helps me put today's news in proper context. Well, Recently, I just finished a sweeping history of the Canadian residential schools, chronicling a complex and grisly story from its early beginnings through to its bitter end. And there's plenty in that story for us to lament about. The emotional neglect, the physical and sexual abuse, the blatant disregard for children, for families, for culture, for language the failure to deliver any kind of adequate education, and the sinful racism that dominated and destroyed everyone in its wake. As a Canadian, it's an ugly part of our history, and we need to know about it. We can't rightly sing of our home and native land without acknowledging what we did to the natives in their own home land. But you know what was most devastating to me about this history? It wasn't the shady Indian Affairs agents. It wasn't even the treaty-breaking politicians, and that was all terrible. What kills me are the Christians in the story 
who confess Jesus with their mouths while acting like the devil incarnate, turning these schools into a living hell. When men would whisper, God loves you, into the ears of boys they abused at night, or when girls were prevented from returning to their homes, often through violence and sometimes for years, out of a racist belief that making them more European would ensure their salvation, or at least better citizenship. Friends, Jesus weeps because of that, and we should too. When we hear this story, we can rightly ask, what kind of Christians are these? Because something's missing, something's warped, twisted. As Christians now, we name that history for what it is, a sick perversion of Christ, a racist departure from his gospel, doing unspeakable damage to people that God loved. And I'm still working through it. I'll continue to do that. My next read on the subject is to expose myself to the tragedy of missing and murdered indigenous women that has occurred in our day. Jesus is still weeping. Why do I mention all that? Because we need to get clear on what being Christian means, what it looks like on the ground, not just in what we say, but in what we do. We can all identify people who confess Christ but live against his teaching, refusing to love their neighbor as Christ has loved us, refusing to do what is right and good in the way that Jesus told us to do. What, what of it? What's our response? What do we say? The watching world is getting sick of the hypocrisy, quite frankly. In the eyes of the unchurched, Christianity, and especially evangelicalism, has been identified more as a political faction fighting for power than a kingdom of God movement living out Christ's love. And that's always been a temptation through history. If you read history, you see that it's still tempting us today. And so it's a common question. What does being Christian even mean? Is there some kind of indicator, you know, litmus test, uh, something that would, you know, a light that would go on so that we could tell if this person really has been rescued by Jesus, that God actually has adopted them as his kids, that the Holy Spirit has actually come to take up residence in their lives and make them new creations beyond just the words that they're confessing? In other words, can we get beyond the words spoken and see what this means in action? You know, DNA tests are all the rage nowadays. People mail away bits of their blood to find out more about who they are. <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to do that, but they want to find out where they're from, you know, who they're related to, what, what types of ethnicity are in their heritage, and maybe even some of the disease or the medical preconditions that they might not be aware of. So I ask you, is there some kind of like Christian DNA test? Somewhere we can send our blood? You know, maybe get, get the test back and open it and go, oh, no. Not a Christian. Oh, yes, definitely, yes. Or maybe test inconclusive, plea try again. Well, John says that there is. John, who physically followed Jesus as a young disciple and is now an elderly pastor, he wants us to know something important. Being a Christian isn't fuzzy or obscure. It's not something that, you know, we just need to guess at or snatch at. 
Knowing what it means to be in Christ, to be a follower of Christ, is not a theoretical framework. John tells us with clarity what it looks like when someone's following Jesus, which can be both helpful and frightening for us. It's helpful because knowing what it means to be a Christian helps us live like Christians. Clarity is always good. But it's frightening because it could reveal something about us, or maybe about others, or maybe about the group we've aligned ourselves with, or maybe about people in our own history, our own family, our own nation, our own story that by all accounts proves that they may have honored Jesus with their lips, but their hearts and their actions were far from him. Or what's worse, if we aren't ourselves firmly anchored in the gospel and what Jesus has done for us, this kind of information could get skewed, could get flipped around in our minds and then used to prop up a kind of judgmental condemnation on actual real Christians who are just struggling with sin. And, and we're going to address that, but that can make things even worse. But whatever the dangers, John does it anyway. He wants his readers, he wants us to know how you can tell who a child of God is and who is not. And he wants that for a very particular reason. So why don't we follow his lead today? I hope you're ready. Um, we're going to look at 1 John chapter 3, continuing in our series, What Matters Most. And I encourage you to find a Bible or down in the bottom of the chat, you see Bible there, click on it, and you can open up John, 1 John chapter 3, 4 through 10. I'm going to pray as we begin today for the Holy Spirit to, to lead us and reveal to us the truth of the word. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that we can come together like this online and to learn together. And I know today is a bit of a tricky subject. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would show us what it means to be one of yours with clarity, with conviction, with power, and with grace. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to read the whole passage today without comment. And then we'll come back to it and try to break it down. In 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, I'm going to read through verse to verse 10. Here it is. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Well, let's go back to the beginning and break this passage down a little bit. The first thing John starts with is the problem that we all share. Everyone who, breaks the, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Who sins? Everybody sins. I sin, you sin, everyone. And John sets up the problem of all humanity here. Every man, every man, every woman, every child, all sin. 
all break God's law. All are in trouble. The words of another apostle, the apostle Paul, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile or Ethiopian or Irish. Doesn't matter if you're educated or illiterate, foolish or wise, rich or poor, redneck slob or elitist snob. All have sinned. All are lawbreakers. Everybody's screwed. And, and he wants us to hear that, but... This is one of the big, beautiful gospel buts in the Bible. Here we go. But, verse 5, you know that he appeared. Who appeared? Jesus appeared. So that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Right there is the gospel story, the solution to our problem. We are lawbreakers, powerless to save ourselves. And Jesus, the sinless one, came to take away our sins. Problem solved. Thank you, Jesus. This is gospel 101. This is what every Christian believes. Everyone who follows Jesus knows this. Jesus, the Son of God, is our rescuer. He came to rescue law-breaking sinners like me from my law-breaking sin. But our original question, what difference does this make in our lives? How does that show up? What's the evidence for that? Well, in order to explain that, John wades into more searing truth about our sin. He's already talked a lot about sin in this little letter, and he'll go on to talk about more. I'm not going to go and reiterate all of it. It's there. Read it. What John does here is he, he presses things to a finer point, telling us that the presence of ongoing, habitual, lifestyle practice of sin is something that we need to pay attention to. And what he says in verse 6 is, the next verse, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or has known him. The presence and practice of ongoing sin indicates something wrong, something off. There's a disconnect somewhere. What John essentially is saying is this. Every person who encounters the living God through Jesus Christ and enters into union with this God by the Holy Spirit experiences transformation. God gets in and change is the result. That's a fact. Another way of putting it would be that you can't remain a practicing sinner when the sinless one has, first of all, taken away your sins, but also brought you into fellowship with the God who is light, in whom there is no darkness at all. We're told that right at the beginning of this letter. In other words, these two ways of living are mutually exclusive. A sinful disregard for God's laws, summarized ultimately in the law of love. A sinful disregard of those laws and spirit-filled living in God's ways, they can't exist in the same person. One excludes the other. John's very stark here, isn't he? It's one or the other. And there's a reason why he's being so brutal. He wants them to know what being a child of God means in real time, in practical life, in their everyday relationships. Because there were nut jobs out there roaming through the churches in John's day saying the complete opposite. We've already met them. He called them antichrists, and we're getting a bit more insight into what they've been shoveling. John tips his hand when he says this in the next verse. He says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. You hear that? 
This helps us understand his concern here. There's people telling these Christians that you can be a follower of God, you can be in fellowship with God, you're A-OK, but you can just keep right on mistreating the people in your life, your neighbor, your friend, your family. Wrong. You can't. Watch how John contrasts now very explicitly between these two ways of living. He says, the one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Why? Because God is in him. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then he backs it up with another reason that Jesus came. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. What's John doing here? He's putting the truth to the lie that how you live doesn't matter. He's building a case. Look, if Jesus came to destroy the devil's work, how could his followers keep doing that work? It doesn't make sense. And then he shifts back to the family metaphor. Remember, he started chapter 3, see the lavish love of God in us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. He shifts back to family here and says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. John wants to give crystal clear information about who's who. What defines the life of the child of God is God's life in them. Their alignment with the God of love. God's kids look like God, their father. They walk like him. They talk like him. They sound like him. They look like him more and more and more. And that permeates all of their relationships. And so how they look is an indication of whose they are. Have you ever seen uh, a kid or maybe a, a group, maybe, maybe a, a bunch of kids, and you realize, wow, are they ever part of such and such a family? I can think of a few in my life where the family resemblance flows really strong. The father or the mother or the family line is writ really large all over them. DNA can be so powerful. I want you to watch this next clip about a father and a son, and Think about what you notice. (laughs) How's that for father and son? And you know what? That kind of remarkable similarity is not just about DNA, is it? Yeah, DNA's there. But that kind of similarity speaks tremendously of influence, of many, many hours of coaching, of time, of practice, of focus, of observing and working and mimicking and walking lockstep and swing in the pattern of his father. It's pretty evident who's been influencing this kid. Well, ultimately, that's John's point here. Children of God look like God. Children of God live like God. Children of God love like God the God who's been revealed in Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? It's not complex. It's not theoretical. It's not difficult to understand, though it can be difficult to practice. Looking like God means loving like Christ. And this is how he finishes in in verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. Nor is anyone who does not love 
their brother and sister. Doing what's right and loving each other, those are the marks, the defining characteristics of the child of God. How do we apply this? Well, in one way, it's quite simple, actually. I mean, you don't want to bog it all down in a whole bunch of, 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 of theory. It's quite simple. Sin, personal sin, cultural sin, corporate sin, family sin, sin is a failure to love. Ultimately, that's the law that gets broken. And John wants us to live, or rather, he says, this is how it's lived. The life of God planted in us is lived out through us, period. But I want to make something clear here. You know, John's trying to cut through the false idea that how we live doesn't really matter. And he's made that super clear. He puts that to rest, you know. This insane idea that Christians could claim to follow Christ and yet mistreat or ignore or harm others. No. This rotten fruit proves the roots. And and it doesn't work. John's made that clear. But he's also been clear about sin all throughout his letter, that as a Christian, we still do sin. It's not as though we've attained some kind of sinlessness, which has over the years caused Christians some consternation as they've read this, and different theologians and translators have wrestled with some of John's words here. But he's really clear. John says, look, we're still going to sin. And when we do, we can take confidence in the forgiveness of Christ. We can confess that sin. We can take confidence in his advocacy for us. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, right? The atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but sins of the whole world. We need to remember the things we've already covered, that we are loved by the Father. We're God's kids. We've been forgiven. And so when we are failing to love God and love others and love our neighbor and love our spouses, we're called to take appropriate action. In other words, when we notice a sinful lack of love in our lives, That's not a cause for despair. In a weird sort of way, we can rejoice. What I mean by that is it's an opportunity to confess. It's an opportunity for alignment. It's an opportunity for God's love to be expressed more through us and in us, conforming us more to the image of Jesus Christ. And so when the Holy Spirit helps us see our sinful lack of love, maybe through a conversation with him, maybe through a conversation with our spiritual friend, maybe through some reading we've been doing or just a a compelling conviction that he's placing upon our lives. Well, when that happens, we confess that as sin. And we ask the Father to grow his life in us. John's not condemning us here. He's not saying that we will never sin either. In fact, he said earlier that anyone who says they don't sin is a liar. So there's that. What he's saying is this. When we've got God in us, when God has come to live, when Jesus has rescued us and forgiven us and included us and anointed us, sin as a way of life, harming others as a pattern of behavior, failing to forgive or harboring hate or nurturing resentment or disregarding and diminishing others, that's no longer going to be the defining pattern of our lives. That's no longer going to be more and more true. It's going to be less and less true. We may still struggle. We may still struggle to overcome racism that we've inherited. We may still struggle to overcome an indifference toward certain people maybe resentment that we've harbored toward a brother or a sister in Christ. But when we confess that as sin, whenever we find it, God is able to continue 
to grow us and to change us. In other words, when we see sin, we don't just shrug it off. We don't make excuses for it. We don't dodge it. We don't act as though it's all fine. And anyway, isn't that just normal? No. We treat it as sin. We confess it as sin and we receive again the advocating work of the Holy Spirit and Jesus in our lives. We let the Father discipline us. We let the Father train us, correct our swing. We may fall again and again, but we continue to fix our eyes on Jesus and receive his forgiveness and get right back up and keep following him in the way of love, walking in the light. That's the sign of God's life in us. In fact, the the period of time between realizing our sin and repenting of it gets shorter and shorter. We confess that sin, we repent it, and we continue to choose to love others the way that God has loved us. As children of God, God's life defines our living. And isn't that loving others creates God's love for us? That would get things all backwards. That would undermine the gospel. No, rather it's that God's love in us, God's love for us, the one who loved us first creates in us a love that we can share for others, the love of God. Everything comes down to the love we have for other people. That's the summary of so much of what John is saying even here in his letter. Saying you love Jesus is just not enough. Yes, we need to believe in Jesus. And the true Jesus that we follow will transform us from the inside out. We'll grow in love for others. Well, let's move to a couple of items of application today as we finish. The first one is personal. And it's a question that I invite you to consider And even now, to reflect on, here's the question. Where is love lacking in your life? I don't just mean a feeling of love. I mean actions of love. I mean where your your ways that you are acting toward others, where you are lacking in love. Yes, of course, what sinful ways of thinking have been permeating your heart and mind. But what sinful ways of acting or not acting things that you've been ignoring or shrugging off, things that the Holy Spirit is identifying to you that need to be confessed, need to be purified, need to be addressed. It could be that there's a relationship that you can identify right now where love has been lacking in the way that you've been acting or not acting, the way you've been snubbing or maybe speaking, maybe toward a certain group, a family member, a spouse or a friend. It could be a brother or a sister right here in the Erickson Covenant Church that you, well, you know. Where have you been excusing your lack of love? And what's the Holy Spirit calling you to do about it? How is he calling you to respond? How is he calling you to live as the child that you are? I want to invite you to sit with that for a few moments. Let the Holy Spirit ask you this question and just reflect on it. Where is love lacking in your life?
So that was personal. The second application I have for you is more cultural or maybe historical, you could say, and that is this. Where was God's love lost in our history or our cultural story? I believe that we need to know more acutely the ways that we, as a culture, as Christians, as Canadians, we have harmed others within our own history. Particularly when Christians have allowed racial prejudice to commit sin against people of other ethnicities. I believe that we need to know that history so we can confess it as sin. We can call sin, sin, confess it, and then learn how that historic sin continues to shape our relationships today. Now, I know I'm touching on a bit of a subject here that some of you may find uncomfortable. I want to issue a challenge for you. Do some homework. Do some reading. I'm a reader, I know, so I'm going to suggest a few books to you, but there's documentaries you can find. There's websites. You can learn more about our compromised histories and the ways that Christians missed it, misrepresented Christ, and as a result, did harm to others. But I do want to suggest two books, two books that have been powerful for me as I've been reading and studying. The first one is written by Jamar Tisby, and it's called The Color of Compromise. And he details the ways the Christian church consistently compromised the gospel truth about other people's. Particularly, he is talking about the ways that the Christian church denied the truth of who the black people were in the history of the United States, created in the image of God, and the ways that they chose to compromise on that. Periods in history, particularly American history, where they chose to remain racist in their practice rather than gospel, rather than godly. It's a challenging history. It's very, very well written and very well worth your attention as a Canadian or as an American or wherever we're from. It's part of our larger shared Christian history. Powerful book. Second is a book called Unsettling Truths by Mark Charles and Soon Chan Ra. They explore the way the church sanctioned theologically and then legally the violent subjugation of indigenous peoples wherever they went authorizing the theft of their land and the enslavement of their people with authority from God himself. They did it over centuries. These church documents set legal precedent that it might surprise you to find is still being appealed to today. Only a few months ago, right in Canada, the Supreme Court appealed to these papal bulls written in the 1500s as precedent for um, ruling in favor of a certain oil project. That's big stuff. And knowing that history is a mind-boggling read. It's going to chill you, but it's also going to drive you to a whole new way of engaging the conversation about loving our indigenous neighbor. I invite you to read that in conversation with the Holy Spirit and perhaps a spiritual friend as you open yourself up to this. Both of these books are written by Christian brothers, three of them, and the Holy Spirit will use them to deepen our shared understanding, our need to confess sin and forgiveness, but also our call to live as God's children today. I appeal to you, let's learn together more about our history. 
our cultural story so that we can call sin what it is and we can live and love as the children of God today. Listen, why did Jesus rescue us? He rescued us to take away our sins and to destroy the work of the devil. And that rescue made a change, a change in us where we are now able to live as God's kids, changing our lives from lawless to love full. And at the end of the day, the end of our lives, the sum total of our witness at what it means to be Jesus' followers, it comes down to the love that is shown, the life that has shaped us through Christ, playing out in practical relationships. In the words of John, chapter 4, verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's be the children we are. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.